Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Just a brief message before we start our show. On August 23rd, I'm excited to be publishing the second edition of my book, Lead from the Heart. No pun intended, but I've always been an open book about the fact that many workplace leaders assumed I was some kind of a nut or someone who really didn't understand business when my book first arrived 11 years ago. At the time, a consultant I paid a lot of money to insisted that I would fail miserably if I went to market with my Lead from the Heart title. For those of you listening to our show for a while, you may recall she told me that I would effing fail if I didn't rename it something like Killer Engagement. But it was Dr. Spencer Johnson, the co-author of The One Minute Manager and author of the leadership classic Who Moved My Cheese, who told me at the same time that the world would one day fully embrace my message. He said, because it's truth, Mark. And I decided to trust his counsel. Over the past decade, I found considerably more compelling research to confirm why deeply caring about the people we manage drives sustainably greater performance. And all of that new science is in the second edition. It would be an honor for me if you pre-ordered a copy for yourself or even picked up a few copies for your team. And now, on with our show. When Bo So was eight years old, he and his family migrated from Korea to Australia. At the time, he didn't speak English and he struggled at school. But in the fifth grade, something happened to change his life. He discovered competitive debate. It turns out a seemingly shy and introverted kid had a knack for persuasion, and he went on to become a two-time world champion debater and the coach for the Harvard College Debating Union. So also graduated from Harvard, earned a master's degree from Tsinghua University, and is about to graduate from Harvard Law School. Somehow, he also found time to write the surprising bestseller, Good Arguments, How Debate Teaches Us to Listen and Be Heard, a book that Wharton's Adam Grant says has the potential to make you smarter and everyone around you wiser. As you'll hear, the 28-year-old So is wicked smart and equally articulate. But we invited him to the podcast because he's discovered the art of having arguments that don't go off the rails or destroy previously healthy relationships. No one has to tell you that we live in a highly polarized world where sticking our neck out risks being punished by emotionally charged people who disagree with our views or choices. And it's in light of our current state of discourse that having guidance on how to have a civil disagreement comes in so very handy. To be a leader today, we also must have the courage and confidence to speak our opinions while concurrently honoring people who disagree with us. And as you're about to hear, becoming a great debater requires a willingness to intently listen to what another person is saying, to empathize with and truly understand their views, and to adjust our thinking in real time tied to all we learn. Hearing Boso's experience and wisdom will surely give you the confidence to use your own voice, not to mention the willingness to honor and respect the voices of all the people you work with, lead, and manage. And with that, welcome to the podcast, Boso. Thanks so much, Mark. Pleasure to be here. Well, good. By the way, are you in Cambridge? I am. Yeah, sunny Cambridge. Very good. Well, you're heading into summer. So thank you for joining me. To get things started, you quote Oprah Winfrey as saying that debate is, in her words, about the power of words to influence ideas, to uncover higher truths, to change minds, and for a lot of people, even to change lives. 
So as this is a leadership-focused podcast, tell us why the skills that you cultivated in becoming a debate champion have direct relevance to any manager's job and to their success. Well, first of all, it's a pretty good thing to have Oprah making your case for you. And <laughs> <laughs> we should try and ring her up. <laughs> but, you know, Mark, I, I don't see myself as bringing debate or disagreement into the workplace or into the family home or into the public square. It's already there. I see my job as trying to given that disagreement is a part of our everyday life, it's about how do we do it better. And I do think it's of special relevance to business and to management. So I'm not a specialist in either of those because the nature of modern white collar work is we essentially sit around in meetings and we argue about what we should do. And it's telling that organizations like Netflix and Bridgewater have often spoken about debate as being kind of central to how they approach their business and how they make decisions as an organization. So to answer your question about the importance to managers, I'll pitch it at two levels. One is managers themselves have to be participants in debates and disagreements all the time. They have to stick up for their team within the rest of the company, and they have to make the case for their organization to the general public. And in as much as that requires a certain kind of a skill set and a mastery of how to make arguments, how to use language, how to pick your battles, how to respond to opposition, I think debate is not the only skill set you're going to need for that, but it has something important to add. But second of all, managers, in addition to being participants in debates, as leaders, have the opportunity and the responsibility to organize debates as well and to facilitate disagreements, to shape them and to give them structure in a way that's going to allow people to get the most out of it. And getting the most out of it has a lot of meanings in this context. It's about making sure everybody on the team feels like they're being heard and respected. It means getting the best ideas out possible. And it's about at the end of the debate and the conversation feeling like we can come back the next day and do it all over again and have our relationship strengthened rather than weakened by the experience. So both as participant and as organizer, it feels like learning the art of debate and of disagreement feels very central to what it means to be a leader in any organization today. I have to say, knowing your background, that that's a really impressive understanding that you have. And for someone who, and unless there are elements of your resume that I'm not familiar with that aren't included in your book, you're just about to graduate from law school. So you have been in academia and the debate world principally. So how do you have such a good understanding of what the work world is all about? <laughs> I think that's fair enough, but I'm not sure. I mean that with admiration, not with... Uh, Academia is certainly very contentious, but I don't know if it's a model for any organization. Probably the part that bears, at least in my thinking on this side of debate, is the few years that I spent as a newspaper reporter for a business daily newspaper. And I was principally a political reporter, but in as much as I spoke to business leaders and, and went inside organizations to interview them... It was this aspect of my biography and background that I found myself connecting to business leaders about because 
flare-ups in the workplace on kind of political issues, especially in these divisive times, but more generally the fact that you have these meetings where people disagree and you have to manage it. I remember that being a kind of a recurring theme in my conversations with those leaders. So part of it is the outlook that I have as a journalist, having traveled across different organizations. And I worked as a journalist in a couple of different countries. And so probably that's where some of the ideas are coming from, Mark. Well, it's really helpful to know going into the rest of this conversation that you have an understanding of what that world is like. And as I'm listening to you, I tend to sometimes just blurt out questions. And if you aren't amenable to that and want to give everyone context, that's fine. Sure. So those are the ground rules. One question I have is like, do you have a style preference, a communication style preference? So in other words, if you're in debate, so, and I hope this isn't reductionist or simplistic, but have you found that any one communication style works better? Like, should you be more direct or less direct or indirect? In other words, should you hold your cards for a while before you express your opinions? Give us the general sense of your strategy. That's a really interesting question. I think the first is I tend to be guided a lot by what the topic is. So what is what it is that's being discussed. So if it's a kind of a debate about something quite technical, like, you know, taxation policy or something like that, you might be a bit more clinical and organized and structured than if it was something kind of more normative and philosophical about people's access to euthanasia or something like that, that might call for a quite a different style. I tend also to take a lot of cues from who I'm facing up against. And there is a kind of a mileage that you can get out of contrast if the other side is especially bombastic and kind of full of bluster often assuming a kind of a stance of modesty can be a useful contrast. And you can think of the inverse for that as well. In terms of my personal style, like I came to debating shortly after I moved to Australia from South Korea without speaking the English language. And for me, debate was useful because in real life conversation, you know, like the one you and I are having, That's a very difficult thing to adjust to when you don't have the language because there's so many cues that you have to read. There are interruptions that you have to deal with. There's so much information being thrown at you. Whereas in debate, you knew you were guaranteed a certain platform from which to speak. And so my learning to debate was really intertwined with my creating a new home in a country that was foreign to me. And one part of that was learning the language, right? And I I had to do it at times, one word at a time. And so for me, probably the thing that's most distinctive about my personal style of debating is a real kind of attention and concern and care for language and wanting at each turn to make sure that I've chosen the right word and that I don't think I've ever been in danger of lacking confidence that the right combination of words can really have an impact on the listener and that it possesses a certain kind of power. So beyond the time that you came into Australia from Korea, that's a, quite a cultural difference, right? And in, in yeah. every shape of the word, learning English coming from Korea, once you'd mastered that, what was the instinct that said, 
I'm going to get really good at this. I'm going to become articulate. <laughs> you have a psychologist chair nearby. Yeah, right. I can, <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> Amateur psychologist here. <laughs> the happy answer is there is a kind of a richness to the world of debate to the wisdoms that it contains and that it has honed over really generations upon generations. And debate is a kind of a tradition that gets passed down. It's just that I'm trying to share it with the broader world. So the happy reason to be there is all that wisdom felt challenging, felt enriching, felt practical and useful. Probably there are less happy answers too. There's a lot of insecurity that you have as a teenager that compounds when you're so visibly different mm -hmm. and you feel different. And so I have to assume that's a part of it too. Well, that's honest, but I think you, I'm going to guess it also, you started to discover somewhere along the line that language made you more powerful, at least specifically in the debate world. I think that's probably right, Mark. And certainly, I mean, I started it in school. And one of the good things about debate, one of its beauties is it's easy enough for school kids to learn, so the barrier to entry is quite low. And for me as a school kid, it was probably the only hope of accessing power that I had, right? I wasn't an athlete. You know, my parents weren't well-connected in the community. They had just moved there. And so, yeah, it, it was perhaps a way of accessing power in the very specific way of being able to persuade people around to my way of thinking and viewing the world, but its attractiveness was probably a result, at least in part, of a lack of other alternatives. So how do you reconcile being a shy, introverted kid in the fifth grade to then becoming this powerhouse on the debate stage? I'm not sure I have reconciled it. Because I think I still am in some ways quite a shy. <laughs> and the instinct to shy away from disagreement, I still have every day, actually. But it's just that I think I've convinced myself and I've seen through my experiences in debate, but also my experience moving across cultures, moving across countries, living in China, living in Australia, living in the United States and Korea, that our differences, though they can be threatening and a source of division, can also be a kind of a force for real creativity and inclusion and, and intimacy sometimes. And that conviction makes it a little bit easier for me in my day-to-day -day life to take the risk of disagreeing. And that's what it is really, isn't it? Because it's much easier when you're in a boardroom or in a meeting room to just hold your tongue and I've done that. I've done that in the workplace. I've done it as a student. I've done it in my everyday life. And it's especially easy to do, actually. It was easy to do when I was that shy kid. And you can just kind of smile and nod and keep your thoughts to yourself. But at least the summation of my pretty short lifetime's worth of reflection is that there is a paucity about that life. And in order to engage with others in a more meaningful way to get something out of the discussion that's more than just kind of people reciting their own views or, you know, blandly agreeing, you need to take the risk of disagreeing. So you're influencing me to get into the idea of disagreements. Right. You've mentioned it a lot in the time that we've been together already. And yeah. I think, and I think, you know, most of us tend to think that 
I'm not going to do this. This is just uh, particularly <laughs> particularly when you you know you're going to be debating somebody. We'll use your language who just sees the world so differently in a way that you don't agree with. And particularly if you perceive that they're strident in those opinions and that they're unwinnable or unbudgeable, you know, uninfluenceable, none of these are words, but, uh, you know, then, you know, then we think, well, they're just going to go off the rails and they're going to leave all of us angry. It's going to leave me angry. And so, I'm not even going to get involved in this. I'm just going to walk away. So what is your best advice for having successful disagreements with other people, including people like this? I think the first thing is, and I totally understand that impulse. And as I say, I, I feel it quite often myself. A lot of those fears are allayed in a world in which everybody shares the common skill set of good disagreement. And that might be learning, for example, what an argument is, what constitutes an effective response to an argument and so on. And this used to be at a time, you know, seen as a kind of a requirement of citizenship, right? So the origins of debate trace back through the history of parliamentary democracy to ancient Greek rhetorical education. There are Eastern counterparts, there's Talmudic education, where learning to disagree better and to disagree productively was seen as something everybody needs to possess. And my hope is to kind of rejuvenate that tradition. But you're right, Mark, that we don't live in that world where everybody does have that skill. And and in many ways, we ourselves don't possess it in as robust a form as we might want. So what what do we kind of do in that world? For me, the bit of reflection that I found myself kind of coming back to again and again and using is, In that world, we need to be really judicious about picking our battles because the more kind of bad disagreements that we get into, the easier it becomes to lose confidence and to lose faith in what disagreement can do. So in the book, I provide this framework, which is called the RISA checklist, where before jumping into an argument, which we so often do out of pride or defensiveness out of these other kind of slightly baser, more instinctive responses to kind of pause and run through a quick checklist of whether this is the kind of debate that we want to engage in. And that is to ask whether the disagreement is in fact real, as opposed to a kind of an imagined slight or something like that, whether it is important enough to justify the disagreement, whether it is specific enough, so a disagreement about just the economy, the state of the economy or about the merits of libertarianism is probably not specific enough unless you planned out a 48-hour discussion or something like that. So you want to cut it down to size and say, we're going to talk about this kind of narrow part of the issue first as a way of getting at some of the bigger themes. And finally, you want to think about whether you're aligned in your objectives whether the two sides are aligned in their objectives for wanting to get into the disagreement. And once you've said that and you've decided it's a kind of a meaningful thing for you to engage in, the other just little wrinkle I would add is it's really important to keep the conversation a debate and to prevent it from devolving into name calling or something like that. And that requires both sides to kind of ensure and to remind one another that what we're doing is having a debate as opposed to just brawling or having a shouting match, because otherwise 
what begins even as a kind of a civil discussion can devolve into something worse than that. Okay, so you're like really great at anticipating things that are going through my mind. So All right. <laughs> how, <laughs> how do you advise us to keep, I'm formulating the question in my mind as I'm thinking, so yeah. I'm practicing my debate skills. Good. <laughs> how do you keep yourself in a unofficial debate, an argument, if you will, a classic argument? from, you use the word devolving. I'm wondering, how do you yeah. keep from insulting other people in the heat of the moment? And then how do you also keep from feeling insulted yourself? Yeah, that's a really, really difficult question because the impulse is always kind of there, isn't it? Mm -hmm. The impulse is always kind of there. And there's actually a Greek goddess of argument but she's kind of a troublemaker and, you know, she's sort of the origin and the person who begins the Trojan War, actually, in the stories. But within the Greek tradition, there's a kind of another reading of her character, which is it's a force for good. So that ambivalence of disagreement being a force for good and a bad and containing both possibilities, I think, is part of what makes it so rich, potentially dangerous and requiring careful management. So how do you do that? The way in which I think about it in the book is there are ways to kind of characterize, and as a debater, you have these arguments on such a regular basis that you can sort of start to see patterns. You can kind of diagnose the common tactics that bad debaters, the people who want to pull you into a brawl, that they engage in. That might be twisting your words. It might be insulting you. It might be lying. And in the book, I give some prescriptions on how you might respond. So those are kind of individual strategies for dealing with particular tactics. But I think the bigger question that you're asking, Mark, is how do we, it's almost a kind of a choice, isn't it? When we decide to and there is a kind of a moment in a disagreement where you just say, oh, blank, it, I'm just going to give this person a piece of my mind or something like that. And I guess part of what I'm trying to say is that is a choice that might be legitimate in some circumstances, but it is a choice to step away from one way of handling our differences, which is to respectfully disagree about them. And that choice is, I think, being made more frequently than it should. And so to stop that from happening, we want to kind of not only name what it is that we're disagreeing about, but the nature of the disagreement that we're having, which is in debate, there are rules like when I'm speaking, someone else doesn't speak and there are going to be turns. So I'm going to get a go but you know you're going to get a go. So you don't have to interrupt now. You're going to be able to respond when I'm done and I'm going to be able to come back at you. That kind of soft infrastructure, that kind of rule setting, I think can be useful to keeping something in debate as opposed to it becoming something else. So I would say maintain a kind of a commitment that it's a debate that you're having and not a different kind Keep in mind the tactics for responding to sort of sneaky ways in which people try and change a debate into something else. Name the disagreement and name the kind of disagreement that you're having so that when one person 
deviates from that, the other can say, well, we're no longer having a debate, are we? So let's say you and I are work colleagues and yeah. you have a very different opinion on something and I'm going to make you the bad guy here. Yeah. So in our debate, you immediately started, like, I won't say attacking me, but you're coming yeah. close, right? And so is it fair for me to say, hey, Bo, before we get going any further on this, let's have a couple rules established here. You said rule setting. And yeah. one is, let's agree to be civil. Yeah. And the second is, you get a go and I get a go. Let me say what's on my mind and then... I'll let you or vice versa. Is there any reason to think that that would make the other person calm down and make this a little bit more of a reasonable conversation where it truly becomes an effective debate? I hope it does, Mark. And I don't think that's going to be enough in all instances. And I don't think the urge to brawl or to fight is something that any book, mm -hmm. let alone mine, can totally manage. But that said... I really liked how you described it, Mark, which is it's a disagreement, but it's starting with an act of agreement, isn't it? You're saying before we have this disagreement, let's agree to the ground rules. And maybe one thing I would add to that is let's agree to what it is we're disagreeing about. So if we're colleagues, it might be about this particular business plan. So that means it's not about the fight we had last month <laughs> on the quarterly results. It's not about, it's not even about your character as a person. And so being able to start a disagreement with agreement so that you can then say, well, this is not really within the bounds of this conversation. That's not to say it's not important or it's not something we shouldn't talk about later, but it's just not what we're quite talking about right now. Being able to say that, I think, is really powerful. And maybe it's not that it will always calm the other person down or guarantee a good conversation, but maybe the way I would amend it is to say it may be the best chance that we have of doing either of those things. Amen. Just to pin down something you said on this is the idea of establishing, so you begin in disagreement, you halt it, and then go back to building agreement. That sort of tames things in a way for me. It changes the energy of the conversation very quickly. We've now agreed it's going to be civil. We've now agreed that I get to speak, you get to speak, and we've agreed on what it is we're disagreeing to. And so you're getting the other person to say, yes, yes, yes. It kind of gives you a little bit of an edge, but that's really not the objective of this. The objective is to make it so that you can have a perhaps heated conversation about something where you really have very different opinions, but to do it in a way that doesn't ruin your relationship with the person or get you in trouble with the boss or ruin your career aspirations and all of that. Yep. So well done. When you competed in your debates, you were judged, and this is true of the, the nature of the debating world, you were judged on the manner of your speech the content of your arguments and your persuasion strategy. So those aren't clear enough. We need to hear from you. Tell us about them, their importance, and even if you can, some insights on how we might all improve our skills in all three of these. So you're right that this is the basic adjudication rubric in a debate, which is debates are judged by a kind of an independent third party. And in order for them to kind of decide which was the more persuasive side. What I like about debate is 
it breaks down that bigger question into different elements. So manner is about how you say something, what the languages that you use, what all the kind of the skills of presentation you marshal in favor of making your case. That is separate from the matter, which is the arguments themselves and the substance of your response to the opposition. And so the kind of the content of the ideas and that separation itself is kind of really kind of quintessential debating move to say you may be right about something, but to present it in a persuasive way is a different question requiring a related but distinct set of skills. The final bit, which is sometimes called method or you said persuasion strategy, is about the general tactic that you take in responding to the opposition. So is your argument against the other side that they are wrong on the facts? Is it that they've overestimated the importance of their arguments? Is it that they've failed to consider some third variable or something else that's important that has consequences for their side? So it's about coming up with a kind of a strategy of response and how well you executed that. And in the book, I get into all of that in quite a lot of detail. But to give a quick couple of examples, one of the things that I think I learned the importance of, even as I kind of learned the importance of as I wrote the book, is in terms of manner, not being afraid to bring elements of personality into it and how it is that you came to hold the positions that you do. And this is something that debaters actually kind of often overlook because it's easy to kind of go voice of God and bring out these positions like they're kind of fixed truths, whereas we know they come from a very particular place. And letting people into that personality and the personal journey that led to the forming of those convictions, I think, can be often a kind of an important tactic in terms of your manner of presentation. I love that. Was that your superpower, by the way? In other words, I mean, you found out very early on that you were good at this and then you became exceptionally good at this. As I was reading your book and even just in our time together, I, I'm just trying to figure out, OK, so why did you win? Like, why were you winning consistently? <laughs> Do you know what that answer is? Like, I mean, yeah. you just gave us a little insight that telling your own stories, like revealing something about your thinking, being vulnerable, those kinds of things could win the hearts of the audience and the judges, that that's true. But you probably have some other powers. What are they? I love that question. I love that question. I mean, I mean, one thing to say, Mark, is I did win the world championships twice, but the life of a debater is you lose constantly. You know, the world championships has 500 teams, and there's one winner because it becomes knockout at some point. So I do hesitate sometimes over the, I was good, but you know, even looking back on it, you do tend to see the losses. In terms of the superpower, I think what you've identified is a part of it. I've never assumed that my background, which is kind of confusing in some ways, born in Korea, raised in Australia, educated in US, China, and back in the US, even though it's kind of confusing and in some ways marginal, I've never presumed that those things are irrelevant or peripheral in the sense of being small. 
because they're really all I have, but I also think they're formative of a perspective that deserves to be heard as much as anybody else. And in terms of the superpower, I think confidence in that is one thing, but another is I've often found with debaters that they're kind of you know, slightly odd characters. You might remember them from high school, right? Like <laughs> they are sort of wallflowers and misfits and nerds, and sometimes they're wearing suits, which is a terrible idea, you know, if you're, you're 16 years old. And um, <laughs> But there is a kind of a, a marginal perspective that they bring. And one of the more recent realizations that I had, especially while working as a reporter, is having that experience of being an outsider makes you a really good listener. And you're a good listener to your opponents, but you also learn to read a room, to recognize little ticks in the audience, to see what the climate and the mood of the situation is like. And I think it's a kind of a survival tactic, really, to heighten your senses in that way. But it becomes really useful because when you're sitting in that room where you're needing to be persuasive, where you're needing to communicate, to bring people around to your way of thinking, you have to listen as much as you speak. And I think probably that ended up, you know, what was a product of a kind of a, not a handicap, but something that I had to overcome, a product of that ended up being one of my strengths. So I would probably nominate that as one of the superpowers. You probably know this because you're so smart, but I would say that the superpower that you just described about going into a room yeah. and being able to, in my language, feel into it. You're feeling into people. You're feeling yeah. into energy. You're feeling into behavior. Yeah. That is an amazing superpower. Because if you're a manager and you're going in with an intent of, hey, we're not coming close to our goals and I'm not happy and I need to tell this to the team that we got to resume getting back to our disciplines and I'm kind of going to be the strident guy. And I walk into the room and I can have a feeling that this is not the moment for that speech and to be willing to say, you know what? There's a moment for it. It's not now. I was hoping it was going to be now, but I'm not giving it because it would have the opposite effect of what I was looking for. That is one profoundly great talent to have as a manager. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And it's not, it's not quite the same thing as winging it, right? Because the way in which you just put it, Mark, is you actually come into the room with a fair bit of preparation an anticipation of what it is that you wanted to do, what you're likely to say, but to get there and see it's not quite what you thought and to be able to pivot in that way and to see it as an opportunity to react and respond requires a bit of courage and confidence to go off script. But I think even in terms of some of the most rewarding debates that I've been a part of is exactly like that. You do loads of preparation in the lead up, but the nuance of the particular issue being described or the mood in the room that you kind of encounter is not quite the same. And when you back yourself in that moment to respond rather than to regurgitate what you've already prepared, I think more often than not, that's the right thing to do. That's fantastic. 
And very well said. You know, something else that I noticed <laughs> in reading your book, the topics that they gave you, yeah. you know, like this isn't like, you know, <laughs> tell us why roses are better than, you know, carnations. This is world issues. You know, you're yeah. getting into specific countries that people probably couldn't pick out on the map. And, <laughs> you know, right. And they don't give you a whole lot of time to prepare. They say, OK, here's your topic and you have to argue in favor or against. And we're going to give you, you know, less than an hour to come back. So. What's your strategy for being so worldly, if you will? Like how you don't know what the topics are going to be, I don't imagine. So you have to be prepared for anything. So at such a young age, how did you become so aware of so many different topics? Yeah, it is a bit of a silly kind of feature of the activity that you have these 14-year-olds talking about the war on drugs or something like that. Um, What's going on in Yemen? Exactly, with a lot of confidence. (laughs) And, and, you know, I used to kind of think there's something a bit problematic about this. But equally, um, you know, the governments, the decisions that our governments make, the decisions that our organizations make with regard to those big issues, complex issues, issues that might otherwise seem outside of our reach, those are decisions that are made in our name all the time. And it does seem like a kind of a an abdication of responsibility as well to think those things are just in the hands of the decision makers and outside our area of responsibility. So I view that a little bit more positively these days. And in terms of what we did to kind of prepare, especially at a young age, you know, I think the thing that I found most helpful is I think when people kind of want to be well read, they take The Economist magazine has that this week in the world kind of thing where they give you a sort of a global coverage of what's going on. I think people kind of tend to take that horizontal view of wanting to get a very broad coverage But in fact, what I found, and this is just me, but what I found useful was going deep. And when you stumble on even one issue that you find kind of interesting and you follow your nose and follow your curiosity, you actually find that by going deep, you end up getting into other themes, topics that are adjacent And you can cover a lot of distance that way. And so the way in which I did it was by going deep on particular issues, reading books about them, reading articles about them. And in order for you to understand that area of the world, you have to read around it as well. And I think that kind of sort of organic sleuthing sort of approach was usually useful for us. And of course, in debate, you have the great advantage of debating about lots of different issues on either side of it several times a week. And so when we talk about being prepared for debates, debating is often a good preparation for debates too. Well, did they tell you what the topics were going to be? So when you say you're going to go deep, that means you can't go broad. Did you ever find yourself being given a topic that you were entirely unfamiliar with? Like, I I couldn't argue in favor of against this? It does happen, you know, and sometimes you're kind of bamboozled. And I think the thing there is, and what I think might be useful in that situation, because we do come across it, is to organize the few thoughts that you do have to show you're working out of, 
look, I don't know everything about this, but here's how I'm thinking about this question. Mm. Here are the intuitions that come to mind to try and follow through on it on each little piece that you do have and not to overstate things too much, right? So if you don't have the full picture, I think sometimes people become less persuasive when it feels like they're selling something that they don't really have the ability to deliver on. So you don't want that kind of gap. And by showing you're working out and, and keeping things in proportion in that way, I think you can often make the most of what you have. And that's obviously not going to be enough in all instances. And you have to kind of go back to preparing and learning. But it's probably the best thing you can do in that situation. A lot of us would be reluctant to start off at a debate and say, you know, I don't know everything on this topic. Yeah. Right. It's just massive vulnerability and makes you look ignorant like you didn't prepare or yeah. or your opponent's going to seize on that. Remember, he told us he didn't know anything about this. <laughs> <laughs> right. So is that a vulnerability or is it a strength? In many settings in debate, and at least I'm kind of increasingly convinced in many areas of life, I think vulnerability can be a kind of a strength. And I think that's especially true in debate. You know, people have this idea that your image of a kind of a high school debater might be they're coming with 20 arguments and 40 different research papers on this, and they're just going to kind of nail you over the head with this. But in fact, you know, when it comes to how people really make decisions and how we're persuaded of things, it often comes down to very few things. It comes down to do we trust this person who's giving us this information and people aren't well-versed on every issue under the face of the sun, but we're all pretty good at reading each other, I think, because we have experience of that every day. And even in the way in which we make decisions, I think it tends to be on the basis of one or two really important points rather than by quantity or weight of arguments made in favor of something. So starting small but going deep and trying to make it as central to the kind of conversation that's being had at that moment, I think that's probably the best way to go. Okay. I wasn't clear in your book, are you allowed to do research during that time or are you only allowed to use your own wits? Yeah, it's a little complicated. I mean, there are different formats of debate and the format that I competed in basically doesn't allow research or access to internet during a timed preparation. So you get between 15 minutes to an hour to prepare for a topic blind, which is to say you don't know it in advance and you have to use your wits to come up with it. But there are a handful of exceptions. So I think in the book, there are a couple of rounds where research is allowed, but for the most part, you aren't. Okay, so let's just assume that you're familiar with the topic, whether it's informed based on they're allowing you to do a Google search and look up information on it, or you're just normally familiar with it. It's really the question of clarity, staying on topic, not meandering and adding on to something you just said a moment ago, not piling on, yeah. knowing when you've said enough. How did you learn those? What, what advice do you have for all of us? I think the most important thing for clarity is to know what your goals are and what it is, where you hope to be at the end of an argument and how it is that you're going to get there. 
And so there are lots of things that you can say that are generally beneficial to your side and make people feel positively about you. But it's important to distinguish what is mission critical versus just kind of nice to have. And in the book, I suggest that most arguments that we make day to day have to show two things. The first is that the main point that you're making is true. And the second is that it's important. So if there's an argument about whether we should hire person X because they would be the most competent executive assistant, you have to show, first of all, that that person would, in fact, be the most competent executive assistant because otherwise you're not getting anywhere. But second, you have to show that the fact that they are going to be the most competent executive assistant means they should be the person that we hire, as opposed to doing it on the basis of how much compensation would be required based on any range of other factors that you might consider. So rather than kind of going into an argument as just saying anything that vaguely supports your case, you want to start by thinking about what do you have to achieve? In most cases, more often than not, it's about showing that the main claim that you're making is true and that it supports the conclusion that you're advocating. Okay. So one more question. You're on stage, you're making your argument. You've talked about trust. I want to know whether or not you, you personally, as part of your strategy, seek to inspire people on the other end, meaning the judges and people in the audience. Is that a intent of yours to leave them feeling something? I think it definitely is, Mark. And the thing about a really well-crafted line, and I usually try and script almost word by word the first thing that I say and the last thing that I say. The reason why that matters is not only because I think words can, can move people's heartstrings, can have a kind of an emotional effect that ideas alone can't have, but I'd also say it signals a certain kind of respect that the speaker has for the listener. And it signals a certain kind of care that they've taken to ensure that their interests and what they might care about has been factored in, that they've thought about them, and that they're presenting these ideas in the form in which they're going to best receive it. And so I think a part of the power of rhetoric stems from that fact. I agree. Well done. So, Bo, we have a tradition on the podcast where we take a brief break from our conversation and we ask our guests, i.e. you, a series of quick answer questions with the intention of learning more about you personally. So we call this the heartbeat round cleverly because we want you to answer each question in a heartbeat. Are you ready to play? Willing to play? I'm willing. I'm ready. Very good. <laughs> All right. Someone famous you'd love to debate? Lee Kuan Yew, the Singaporean leader. Something important that you specifically learned in the process of writing your book? Whatever work you don't do as the author to clarify an idea, the reader will have to do in reading the book. Is that a good thing? It's a bad thing. You have to put in the work. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Just checking. Okay. The quality you admire most in other people? Kanda. One subject you believe all workplace managers would be wise to bone up on? Debate. What drives you to achieve, personally? I think it's insecurity. Interesting motivation. 
that's working for you. Something <laughs> <laughs> working on that too. <laughs> something you think everyone should do at least once in their life. Move countries. A book you wish everyone in the world would read. On Beauty and Being Just by Elaine Scarry. A prediction about the future you're pretty sure is going to come true. That people will come to believe if they don't already that the level of polarization that we're seeing in our public and private lives is unsustainable and that we need a better solution. Amen. Skill improvement you're working on right now. Legal reasoning. Oh, yeah. Third year law student. That's it. Your favorite word or a word you find yourself frequently using? Thanks. Any trait that's both a liability for a debater and for a leader? I'd say certainty, followed by laziness. And finally, a quote or mantra you use as inspiration? Is a slightly amended quote from the poet Mark Doty. Aren't we enlarged by the scale of what we're able to desire? Still time, still time to change. Wow, that's wonderful. Isn't it great? Yes, really great. All your answers were great. So thanks for going through this with me. Of course. Thanks, Mike. Well, this is a leadership-focused audience. So before you go, think through all of your massively successful debating experience and leave us with an insight that might make us more effective communicators, managers, and people. Mark, I think it has a little bit to do with a quality that we've been talking about. And we've used words like vulnerability. We've used words like attention to others to describe this. But another way to think about it is it's a kind of a humility that says you probably don't have all the answers. And one of the reasons why we go into a disagreement is because of the conviction that the answers that we're going to come to together are going to be more rich, more truthful than what we might get to on our own. And so one of the things that I would kind of encourage or ask your readers to think about or your listeners to think about is the aim in a debate, in a disagreement in your organizations and in your communities shouldn't just be about which person gets their way, but rather what you're able to create together. When you say create together, are you saying that you're approaching debate from a point of view of I'm open to being influenced to come up with a better solution than I may have come up with on my own? That's right. Okay. I think it's a kind of a, a recognition that we're not self-sufficient and that, of course, we want to get our way, but our arguments for that, our advocacy for that is going to be strengthened by taking competing ideas into account and improving ourselves so that we're able to respond to them. That's great. I mean, you really have to put your ego aside in order to do that. But those people who can do that tend to be profoundly more influential because people know that they're not going to be met with you know, massive resistance. They're actually meeting with someone who's open to being persuaded. And that's very um, short of supply these days, shall we say? Yeah, I like that idea a lot, Mark, that to be influential you have to be open to being influenced. And I'm not sure I'd thought about that prior to you saying that, but it makes sense, doesn't it? Because when you're pulling on the strength of debate, it's not that you're pulling on your own abilities, but also those of the people around you 
whether they be your teammates or your opponents or your competitors. And so if you believe, as I do, that we can create more together than we can on our own, it makes sense that those cycles of influencing and being influenced can be creative and powerful in that way. Very well said. You know, when I saw your book, before I'd read it, I already knew that like, I had this intuition that I wanted to invite you to being on the podcast, even though on the surface, I'm sure there were people that thought debate, like, what has that got to do with leadership and your themes? But you've more than exceeded my expectations in terms of the depth and understanding and insights that you were able to provide. So on behalf of my audience, thank you so very much. It's been a real delight. Thank you so much, Mark. I really enjoyed the conversations and, and I hope it can be an ongoing conversation about because there's a lot that I don't know that your audience would about what we can do with some of these ideas of debate and disagreeing well. So thanks so much and take care. You too. As we close, I want to thank you for your continued support, especially by introducing our podcast to your friends and colleagues. Every time we end a season, we seriously ask ourselves if our audience still wants us and whether we should continue. And the only metric we use to decide is how many listeners we have tuning in and whether that number is growing. And so we'd love to keep growing and keep going. So please help us through your word of mouth recommendations. Our brilliant theme music is the jazz classic Take the A-Train, written by Billy Strayhorn nearly 75 years ago and is performed by the extraordinary BBC Big Band Orchestra. And as always, I want to thank my talented and wonderful team, Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Randy Yant, Kerry Finnessy, and my producer, Eric Oz. And I leave you with my two consistent reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Mm-hmm.